So we've got a pretty big section today. I'm going to talk through it, and then I want to settle on a passage that's right in the middle uh, that Connor read to us and spend most of our time there. If, you're, if you've been out for a little while, or you're not familiar, or you kind of forgot where we were last week, just this to kind of set the scene, we're in this Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacle. It's kind of early October. It's, a, it's like a harvest festival, and it's when the people of God, they would remember God's provision in the wilderness during their exodus, and they would rejoice at God's continued provision for them in this agrarian or agricultural uh, culture that they were in. And also part of this feast had an eschatological perspective, meaning it was looking forward to the coming of God's kingdom. So it was about what God had provided, what God was currently provided, and what God would someday provide uh, in the Messiah. So look at verse 25 of uh, John chapter 7. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem begin to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? They're talking about Jesus. Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? Verse 27, but we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. And then verse 28, then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. The people are there and they're saying, well, why don't they just arrest Jesus? Do they really think that he is who he says he is? And then at the same time, they kind of question their question because they're like, well, it can't be that because we know where he's from. There was this prevalent, although unbiblical belief that the Messiah would be completely unknown until he appeared. And when he appeared, he'd be anointed and then he would overthrow the government that was oppressing these people. And then everyone would know that he is the Messiah. He would just show up out of nowhere. It would be very clear, this is the one. But they've known Jesus for a long time, and so they're saying, well, how could he be who he's claiming to be? And so Jesus exposes a lack of understanding. He reveals his nature, and Jesus is in effect saying, yes, you do know me, but you've missed the point. Meaning like you know kind of the story of who I am, but you've missed the point on who I actually am. It's not about where you think I'm from. It's about who sent me. And his commentary on John D.A. Carson says this, Jesus's point is not that God exists, but that God as the one who sent him is real. Or in a modern idiom, he really is the one who sent Jesus. Jesus is saying, he who sent me is true, meaning the God who sent me is the real God. And you think you know God, but you don't know him because you don't know me. I'm going to give you, uh, again, we've done this, but I'm going to give you just the bottom line in the book of John. So if you kind of just pass out for the rest of this sermon or you just miss John, I'm going to give you just the bottom line of what John, who wrote this account of the life of Jesus, he's called the evangelist. This is, this is what his bottom line is. Only through Jesus can God be truly known. Only through Jesus can God be truly known. And as you can expect, there are people who are divided on this. In fact, some people want to imprison him. We see that in this section. And other people actually believe him. Look at verse 30 and 31. 
At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. You see, the sovereignty of God is active in the life of Jesus here. It's not yet time. Uh, It's not yet his time. And still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? What they're saying is, look, how... How could there be another Messiah? Because look at what this guy's doing. Is somebody else is going to do even more signs, even more wonders than what he is doing? Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. And Jesus said, I'm with you for only a short time. And then I'm going to the one who sent me. You'll look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? And so the Pharisees, they enlist these temple guards, uh, and, and they don't have real authority. They're not like policemen. They're, they're from the, the Levites, and basically the, these temple guards, their job was to kind of keep order in the, in the temple. Um, and Jesus knows this about them, so he tells these guys just how little power they actually have, and he says, look, you're not going to be able to take me this time because I'm going back to the Father. And the guards are like, well, uh, we're very confused, and they think, well, Jesus, maybe he's going to the Jews who are dispersed throughout the world. Maybe he's even going to go to non-Jews. So again, a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding about who Jesus actually is. Skip um, down to verse 40. Uh, And then we'll go back to that section in just a second. On hearing his words, verse 40, some of the people said, surely this man's a prophet. Others said he's the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people uh, were divided because of Jesus. And some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guard said. We've never heard anybody like this. We we couldn't arrest him. Verse 47, you mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, if you remember earlier, Nicodemus had spent some time with Jesus. Um, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. All right, let me explain what's happening there. There's multiple um, unfounded objections to Jesus as the Messiah by the crowd and by this Jewish authority. That essentially shows their lack of understanding and knowledge about Jesus. Because he is from Bethlehem, he is from the line of David, he is a, a man of a mysterious eternal origin, he's not merely a man. And so when the guards are sent to arrest him, they can't even make up their minds about, should we be arresting him because of the power of Jesus' teaching? And Nicodemus, who's already met with Jesus, is giving Jesus the benefit of the doubt. And so when the religious authorities, they're they're talking about, they make this line here. They say, "Well, well, there's no prophets that come from Galilee. They don't even have it straight because the prophet Jonah and the prophet Nahum were both from that Galilean region. 
And so there's this misinformation, there's this misunderstanding about Jesus that's just running rampant here in this scene. To see Jesus as the fullness of God's revelation is not like a superficial faith or just a, a simple acknowledgement of his ability to teach or to be kind to others. It is to believe in him with all of your heart. In fact, a better way to say it is to actually, it's to believe into him, not just simply to believe about him, but to believe into him, all of him, his identity as the son of God, his authority over your life, his life, his death as an atonement for the sins of those who would believe, and his resurrection. This is what makes biblical Christianity so unique because every other system of understanding human nature, if it doesn't include knowing God through Jesus and Jesus alone, it will lead you eventually back to you. And you can't solve your biggest problem because you are your biggest problem. So no work, no morality, no religion will ever be enough. Nothing that excludes Jesus or includes something needed additional to Jesus will ever save you. Because anything that excludes Jesus excludes the one true God. So that's the scene that Jesus is going to have this big moment in here. There's all this kind of swirling misunderstanding and misconception about who he is, accusations that are flying, people who have already left, people who are contentious, people who want to arrest him. That's the scene. That's the tension in this next couple of verses here. Look at verse 37, and this is where we're going to camp for the rest of our time. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. So Jesus here at this festival of booths, this festival of tabernacle, this massive crowd, he's addressing a group of people who'd be very familiar with drought. They were accustomed to seasonal droughts and a consistent lack of water. The riverbeds would all be drought up. The vegetation would be burned up by the sun. And there would be no water in the cisterns, meaning there's no water to drink. So the entire community here is well aware of their need for water. And so Jesus speaks in such a way that would just really capture their attention, and what Jesus is going to do here is what Jesus does very often. He's going to take a moment in the culture and he's going to dial into what the culture is talking about, what the culture is thinking about, what it's paying attention to. And he's saying to them, the same way that you pay attention to bread and your need for bread, the same way that you pay attention to water and your need for water, he's saying, I want you to give that attention. I want you to give that energy. I want you to give that level of focus to me. In fact, he says, I'm living water. And the reality is that Jesus is still speaking that to us today. He's still speaking into this concept of living water for us. And here's what I mean by that. Every person in the room, regardless if you're a Jesus person or not, or Christian or not, a Bible person or not, we all have things that we've planted into our life. 
We, we have things that we've dug a hole and we put a seed in, we've planted into our life, uh, that we have an expectation attached to the thing that we've planted that it's going to grow into purpose or it's going to grow into satisfaction, it's going to grow into identity, it's going to grow into joy, it's going to grow into peace, it's going to grow into meaning, it might even grow into salvation for us. We all have things that we've planted We've planted into education, or we've planted into relationships, or we've planted into money, or our vocation, or our work, our kids. We've planted into our physical appearance. We've, we've planted seeds and hoping that they would grow and they would bear the kind of fruit that would bring about the kind of life that you desperately desire. Every one of us, myself included, we have things in our life that we've planted into with expectation. And I think that even applies to our life with God sometimes. Because there's been times where like, we've tried to plant in the, the seed of attending church. Like you come to some kind of gathering like this, and you're like, I'm planting into that, hoping that it grows something good in my life. Or I'm planting into some kind of Bible study, or planting into like a missions trip. And if I plant into that, then something good will grow out of it. Something that I really need or want in my life will grow out of that. And what was really frustrating for some of us is that we've done those things and that still encounter a season of drought. And in that moment, Jesus steps in and with a loud voice, he says, living water is here. In a world that is full of longing and full of searching and full of letdowns, Jesus is saying once again to these people here and to us this morning, I'm what you're looking for. I'm what you're looking for. The expectation should be attached to me. Living water is a phrase that Jesus uses twice. He's already used it in John chapter 4, and when he uses it there, he's speaking towards salvation. He's, he's talking about new life with God. But when he uses it here, he's, he's talking about sanctification, meaning the, the ongoing life with God, uh, meaning this process by which the Spirit of God forms us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. So this is something that God initiates, meaning that God alone starts this work of making us like Jesus, and he continues it and sustains it. In John chapter 4, I just want to jump back just for a second. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story, it's, it's a place where Jesus has this midday encounter with this woman at a, at a well. So they obviously in this day did not have indoor plumbing the way that we do. So you would have to go to these wells to get your water for drinking and for, for everything. And so his disciples uh, in this moment, they've gone to town to get food. It's just Jesus. He's sitting at a well uh, where people would go to draw water. And there's this woman there. And Jesus asks her for a drink. Uh, he has no bucket, no rope, nothing to drink of. So he says to her, uh, and he says to the Samaritan woman, he says, uh, give me something to drink. Uh, and when he's talking to the Samaritan woman, they have this little exchange. Um, and he says to her, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who is talking to you, you would ask for living water. And there's this amazing moment in this dialogue uh, where she says, well, give me some of that water. I want that. Living water? I want that. And then in verse 16, in response to this woman asking about the living water, listen to what Jesus does. He like just completely flips the script. We're going to put the text on the screen. You don't have to turn back there. John chapter 4, verse 16. She says, give me this living water. And then this is how Jesus replies to her. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Well, I have no husband, she replied. 
Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband, so what you have just said is quite true. Now, if you're reading this story, you're not familiar with what the heck is going on right now. You're like, Jesus, why did you have to blow her up like that? I mean, you're the one who said you should get this living water. She's like, yeah, that's great. And then you drag up all this stuff about her life. Now, I know we've taught this section already, but not everyone was here. Not everybody knows the story. So let me just unpack this for a second. You see, in this culture and at this time, that woman could not get five husbands on her own because a woman could not get a divorce on her own volition. A woman didn't get a divorce. She got divorced from. So what would happen was if a man wanted a woman, he'd pay the woman's father a dowry or a bride price, and the man would be with her. And according to Jewish law at this time, you could divorce a woman for virtually any reason that you wanted. So the fact of the matter was, once a man got tired of her, you could leave her and get your money back. So in this day, a woman came with a money back guarantee. And now this woman is out here on her own. That cycle that I just explained happened to her five times. She's been broken and abused and used, and there is now a stigma on her. So she's got to carry all that internal anxiety, that internal pain, but then there's a stigma that's on her that she has to carry around along with all this other pain and baggage of being discarded multiple times, which is why she most likely ends up at the well at midday, not early in the morning when all the other wives and all the other women would go. Because those were all the wives and all the other women who no doubt were talking about her because everybody knew her story. She's alone and no one wants to be with her. And now she's with a guy who she doesn't want to marry because that journey of marriage has just been too costly and too painful. So instead of dealing with the brokenness of rejection, she'd rather live with a broken acceptance. She's willing to be a wife without really being a wife. She's willing to have a husband without him really being a husband. And what Jesus does is he say, look, I have living water. And what he's actually saying is that before you'll have this water in your life, you have to deal with the places that you're going to for water right now. And what he's leading towards in this beautiful story is that before you turn your life to him, you have to reject this well that you've been drinking from, the places that you go to drink deeply from that are just leaving you more and more thirsty. If you're looking to anything other than Jesus for purpose, identity, satisfaction, life, only to have those things leave you absolutely parched. The invitation is to leave those things and to turn to Jesus who is living water. And that's for a person who's not yet come to Jesus in repentance and faith or given their life to him, who's come to the place where Jesus is the source of life. Jesus confronts all of us, men and women, who have other places that we draw from in life, and he invites us to draw for him. Now, I want you to take that picture of John 4 that I just shared with you, that encounter, that amazing encounter that Jesus has with that woman. As we get to chapter 7, get back to this festival of of booths, this celebration of the provision of God uh, in the history, particularly in Exodus 17, uh, where God provided water for his people out of the rock, but also looking forward to the 
to the harvest. And Jesus steps into the celebration where everyone's in town and he's got everyone's attention. Now, each day of this feast, uh, there were seven days, they would have what they called a water ceremony. So in the water ceremony, there would be this procession of priests, and these priests would go to the pool of Siloam, they'd go to the spring, and they'd take a golden pitcher, and they'd fill it, and when the priest was filling this pitcher with water, a choir would sing, and they would chant Isaiah 12, uh, verse 3, which is, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In fact, the ceremony was often called the water drawing ceremony uh, as they were to draw on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again, Carson says this, these ceremonies were related both to the Lord's provision of water in the desert and to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. Pouring at the Feast of Tabernacles refers symbolically to the Messianic age in which a stream from the sacred rock would flow over the whole earth. Okay, so get this scene. Everyone is there. It's like we said last week. This is absolutely packed. This is the thing that, that takes over all of society, takes over all of culture. The priests and the choirs are all singing about water. They take the golden pitcher, they go down to the spring, fill it up, and then they would carry it all the way back up the hill, and the crowd would have these branches in one hand, they'd have a piece of fruit in the other hand, I know it's weird, but this is what they did, and they would be reciting Psalm 113 uh, through 118, these, these songs. They'd be singing these songs, and they're all songs about God's faithfulness and deliverance, and about how God's going to move among his people. In fact, Psalm 114.8, right in the middle of the section, it says this, he turned the rock into a pool of water. Yes, a spring of water flowed from solid rock. So there's this huge procession, priests, choirs, branches, fruit, singing. It's a huge deal. And then the procession, this giant parade would arrive at the temple. The priest would climb up the altar steps, pour water onto the altar, and then the crowd would circle around him, and then they would all start singing. It's a huge ordeal. Choirs, priests, parades. I mean, it's a huge thing. And the reason why is because they believed if it rained, that water came down, it meant that God was going to bless them that year. So they do all of this because they're seeking a blessing from above. They're seeking rain that would bring a fruitfulness to the ground. And the people saw a kind of like spiritual rain that God would bring to his pe people. Now, on the last day of the festival, so seven-day festival, on the last day of the festival, they would do that whole procession, that whole thing I just described, take the picture, go down, down to the spring, fill it up, hike up, sing the songs, shake the branches, carry the fruit, the whole thing. They'd do all that seven times, seven times. They'd go to the spring, they'd pour the water, sing the songs, and that's the scene of John 7, verse 37. It's the last day of the feast, the great day, all the things, all the expectation, everything's culminating into this moment. Make it rain, God. They're looking up, and I just kind of imagine Jesus. Again, like I've, I've told you, read your Bible, kind of like engaging your mind, engaging your imagination. Last day, all the hoopla. The priest has done his thing on the seventh time. The people are on the last chorus of their song. The praise band's doing their hill song ending. I mean, it's like the crescendo thing. It's all like about to end. He just did the thing, poured the water. We're all singing choir. We're waving the thumbs. And, and at the chorus, 
cord is just about to die out. And Jesus, watching, stands up and with a loud voice says, If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. Anybody here thirsty? If the prophet Isaiah could invite people to drink from the waters, Jesus is saying, I'm the one that provides the water. You're in a drought. You're looking for water. There's going to be a time when the water is going to be in you. Now, notice Jesus is offering uh, the living water in John 4, and here he's saying that living water will flow from them. That's the distinction from earlier in John chapter 4. It's water to you, and now Jesus is saying there's actually going to be water within you. Now, let's kind of slow down a second, zoom out, and get the whole picture. Jesus has been rejected by his brothers. Verses 25 to 36, he's got people doubting who he is. He's got the Pharisees that are mobilizing guards to go arrest him. The masses are there. And now Jesus, what he could do is he could de-escalate the whole situation for his own good. There's already a ton of tension around Jesus. There's already a ton of people who've already left him. His own brothers have rejected him. I mean, he could just kind of host a small little gathering. He could just say, hey, I'm going to be in the corner of town doing a small little breakout session on water. I've got a little webinar if you want to get into it. You know, it's just a small little thing. He could, he could have done that for his own good. But he steps up to center stage with a loud voice. Because for Jesus to break through the noise of religion and the stupor that we find ourselves in from chasing empty wells, Jesus has to disrupt. He's got to interrupt the whole thing. He's got to interrupt you. He's got to interrupt me. He has to interrupt and break up what the people had habitually doing. And I just think, God, maybe you're doing that with us today. God, maybe you're interrupting. Maybe you're disrupting to create a greater devotion. What's interesting is that John explains what Jesus means. Jesus doesn't say it, but John does in verse 39. Listen what he, what he says. He, he says, uh, by this he meant the Spirit. What Jesus is saying here, that the Spirit of God will indwell you and that you can have a life in the Spirit that's so powerful that it will flow from you and you'll be able to offer it to the world. This powerful spiritual life will flow from you to others for the fame of Jesus, for the good of the world. You see, this idea that we have that our life with Christ is only for us and us alone doesn't seem to be what Jesus has in mind here. He announces the indwelling of the Spirit in our lives. If you know the story in the book of Acts, and if you don't, I would just recommend that you read through it, but this is what happened in Acts chapter 2. There's about 120 believers that are gathered in this room. The Spirit of God comes down, and this church, this group of believers is now unstoppable in the advancement of the kingdom of God. 
Read Acts. It's crazy. Sick people are healed. Demonized are set free. Dead people are raised. And not because of an amazing preacher, not because of a great worship band, not because of an amazing space that they get to gather in. It was because each believer was filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit was flowing from them. And Jesus is saying here, you're in a drought, but there are rivers, rivers of living water that will flow from you. Now he talks about a kind of a similar idea in John 10. He says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He's talking about a life that flows from you to the world because of the spirit of God within you. Paul picks up on this idea when he's writing to the church at Ephesus, this real place, this real group of believers in Ephesus. He says this in Ephesians chapter five. He says, don't get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery, instead be filled with the Spirit. When you're drunk, what happens? You're controlled. So he's saying in that same way, be be controlled by the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. And look what happens when, when that happens. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look what happens when the Spirit flows from your life. In verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The people of God are meant to be like a river of the Holy Spirit in the midst of a drought in the community. Let me me make something just really clear here because I don't want to be misunderstood. You are not the river. It's the Spirit of God in you, in a believer that flows outward. We're to be this people who have rivers of songs that flow from us and, and rivers of joy that flow from us and rivers of thanks that flow from us and rivers of humble, mutual submission to one another out of reverence for Christ that flow from us. And this is what happens when God fills us with the Spirit. He brings revival. And what's Revival. It's the Spirit of God filling up believers, and those believers live in the fullness of God, the presence and the power of God, and it flows into dry places, and it flows to dry people. I heard one preacher who said, he, he fills us to spill us. It fills us up so that we'd be poured out for the fame of Jesus. Um, I I like to spend time kind of in the high desert region in Arizona for hiking or hunting or things like that. And if you've ever been out there, and you'll see in most of it brown, most of it's pretty desolate, but then you'll see like this line of kind of like alder trees sometimes, or you see different kind of like vegetation that kind of springs up. It kind of takes like a windy path through the desert. And that's because there's a stream there. There's a river there. There's a place where there's flourishing that happens in the middle of the desert because it's closer to one of these streams or closer to one of these places of water. And I envision us as that stream in this desert landscape of our culture that's offering all these false things. There's a stream that's winding its way through and all the places where we go, all the places where we live and all the places where we work and all the places where we travel, there's a flourishing that comes up for the fame of Jesus, for the good of the world. 
What John, what Jesus is telling us in John 7 is I want you to be people who are walking into and stepping into John 4 realities with a John 7 filling of the Holy Spirit. I want you to be a river that goes to the dry places and the dry people. And I want you to tell a parched world about the all-satisfying, all-life-saving living water that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A John 7 people walking into a John 4 world. And Jesus is multiplying himself and his people, and he's saying that by my spirit, you've got this river inside of you that's flowing out to the community. I'm praying that we would catch a vision of what Jesus is offering and that there would be rivers that flow into our relationships and our marriages and our homes and our schools and our business and our community. And by the power of the spirit, the world can see in us a life that is abundant and that is only found in Jesus. How is that going to happen? Let me ask you this first. Where do you draw from? What, what spring, what cistern, what source do you draw from? Give the real answer. The answer that you and God know to be true. Give that answer. The place your mind goes, the place your energy goes, the place your heart sits. When you're thirsty, where do you go? If, if you look at the life of Peter in the Gospels, and we're almost done here, he has a pretty roller coaster experience with his life with Jesus. If you look early on with Peter, he's usually doing something foolish or fearful, like denying Jesus. But when we get to Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the members of the council, these are the people who were uh, against Peter and against the early church, against these early followers. The Bible says they're amazed at the boldness of Peter and the boldness of John because they could see that they were just ordinary guys. They had no special training, just ordinary men. But they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. There's something about that man, Jesus, that is now affecting this man, Peter. And church, the boldness that will let you stand against a culture that hates the things of God is God himself and Jesus. And when we think of the Spirit, a lot of time we think of uh, like gifts, like a person has a kind of ability, like a, a supernatural ability to do a thing. And that's true. God gives spiritual gifts. But what Jesus is preaching on, what he's offering is, is a filling of the Holy Spirit, meaning a daily walking in and a daily communion with the Spirit of God. Because the time that you spend alone with God is time quenching your thirst from something else. All the things that you've pursued that make you super thirsty that leave you parched, your time with God is what actually quenches your thirst from spending time with those things. Do you see what I'm saying? You quench your thirst by drinking deeply of Jesus in prayer, in his word, in worship. What Jesus did here in John 7 is he went to this festival where everyone was worried about drought, where everyone's worried about the dry season, where there wasn't enough. There wasn't enough for crops to grow. There wasn't enough for, for you to have anything to drink. And dehydration was setting in these people in this community. And Jesus is saying, look, you can have a river flowing from you when everything else around you is dried up. When everything else around you in your life is dried up, you can have a river flowing in you. And all of us either have or might be in the midst of or will encounter a season where everything around us is dried up. 
the promise of Jeremiah 17 is this, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence in him. They'll be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. When the heat of financial collapse, when the heat of physical sickness, when the heat of depth, when the heat of tension, when the heat of anxiety, when the heat of just everything in life that seems to be crumbling around, it does not fear because its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. It never fails to bear fruit. You can be fruitful in any season if you're sending out your roots to the stream of God's presence. Paul talks about this to church in Galatians. And this is, I really, I keep saying we're going to end. We really are right now. Listen to what Paul says. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. And then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. And these two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you're directed by the Spirit, you're not under obligation to the law of Moses. Verse 19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, enviness, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. The only one I haven't done on that list is sorcery. I've never cast a spell on anything. I actually felt okay about that. I was like, all right, at least there's one. (laughs) He says, let me tell you again that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's bad news. The good news is this, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul says there's no law against that stuff. And those who belong to Christ have nailed the passions and the desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified him there. Amen? And since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. And then he says in chapter 6, don't be misled. You can't mock the justice of God. You're always going to harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So church, let's not get tired of doing what is good. Because at just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. In our lives, church, you're either going to see the crops of the Spirit or you're going to see the crops of the flesh. You can plant in prayer. You can plant in love for others. You can plant in generosity and giving, and you'll see a harvest of joy and peace and patience and goodness. Or you can plant in anger and gossip and divisiveness and envy and selfishness, and your harvest will be a life that rots you from the inside out, death and decay. When we live controlled by the Spirit and we offer peace and patience and kindness and goodness, we offer something life-giving to the world. But when we live controlled by our own fleshy desires, we offer the world an empty cup in the midst of a drought. And Jesus gives us the opportunity not only to have living water, but to offer it to a dry and weary world, not by our own might, not by our own ability, not by our own power, 
but by his spirit. Let's pray for that. Father in heaven, thank you for your word this morning. God, thank you for um, the boldness of Jesus who uh, in the midst of arrest warrants and in the midst of rejection and in the midst of accusations and false thoughts about who he is, he steps up to proclaim to the world what we need the most, him. And I just pray, God, that because of uh, this reading of your word this morning, God, you might stir up that same kind of boldness and courage in us and in our church. God, again, not by our own might, not by our own power. This is not a rallying speech for us to just pull ourselves up by our bootstrap. It's an invitation to drink deeply from you. And so, God, I pray that you would uh, make us thirsty for you. We pray these things in your name.